the resounding message of the Game of Thrones series, and I think we're all alongside this, is don't shag your relatives. It won't work out. Let's let's move on to the next chapter, uh, which will now be called Theon Greyjoy's Poor Life Choices. So how big are these fucking eagles? Because the direwolves I've, I've taken to thinking of as being battering rams covered in fur. Like, there's no beat in a direwolf. Yeah, well, he got the he got the drop on him, literally, didn't it? Hey, hello, and welcome to episode eight of Shark Liver Roll's coverage of A Clash of Kings, which is the second book in A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin, or as it's more commonly known these days, A Game of Thrones. I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. Today we are reading. Uh, it's not a particularly long stretch. Uh, but we're going from page 689, which is a chapter about John, um, as far as page 730, which is... Let me just do some very quick flicking through the book. It's a chapter about Sansa, which begins, they had been singing in the sept all morning. Sounds jolly, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Sounds yeah. quite happy. <laughs> okay, let's start with uh, so. Oh yeah, very quick introduction. If you're wondering what we are, what we do, what we do with every book, we break it down into a load of sections, normally ten, and uh, go through it part by part. So you can read along with us if you uh, if you so wish. And this part, part eight, goes from page six eight nine to seven three zero in the paperback version. Dave, let's start with John. Let's. And it being dark in the Skirling Pass. The Skirling Pass. Ah, 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 ah. Yeah. So, so, so John's part of this um, this group of sort of elite commandos, effectively, at the moment, who've been sent out as a scouting party to see what's going on with these wildlings. So you've got John and Corin Halfhand, who's this absolute, just legendary badass. Yeah. Uh, you know, Night's Watchman. And then his, his group, Squire Dolbridge, who's this expert bowman, Stone Snake, who's this expert climber, and Eben, who's... Is this, he's just another general badass, isn't he? Yeah. I thought you were going to say, and Eben, who makes a mean pasta and sauce. <laughs> I was going to say, and Eben, who is bald. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true, you know, if you, but if you're, if you're bold and a badass, I don't think there's anybody in the world that would tell you, uh, tell you that that's a bad thing. Yeah, he's bald, he's bald and bald. Oh, love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. So they, um, as they're making the way through, um, it, when we last left John, um, he, he, he'd effectively freed the uh, uh, egrets, hadn't he? So they, they captured this wildling um, uh, girl, yeah. and he'd been told to execute her, and instead he let her go. Um, he has this chat with Corin Halfhand, and first they talk about Mans Raider, who's the guy who's leading the wildlings, who used to be a ranger. And um, sort of John asks Corin about him because they they fought together, and he says he was both the best of us and the worst of us, um, and mm. that he was always half a wildling because he always sort of seemed to love wildling things. And Cor- Corin also makes this point that um, only fools despise. Um, the wildlings that they you know that they're as brave and as and, and as and as dangerous as we are sometimes yeah and i think that's really important isn't it because we've seen little glimpses of that so far that the wildlings are um not just one-dimensional baddies um hmm. and it's so good to have somebody who's senior in the night's watch be like 
to a certain extent facing his own darkness and saying you know well i mean he was one of us he wasn't one of us we're all to a certain extent we're all a little bit wildling i think is is kind of what he's saying here because you do have to be a little bit nuts to go and spend your life wandering around in a frozen wilderness where everything's trying to kill you (laughs) you know it's not genteel is it you know yeah yeah that's true and um Actually, when he says the people who uh, he, he names so, he said only fool. He says only fools like Thor and Smallwood despise the wildlings, and it's just another yeah. um, insight into how this guy is a who's now leading the Rangers is a great, brave, daring fighter, but you know he's one of those fairly black and white and not particularly finessed people. <laughs> he just sees either enemies or friends, doesn't he? <laughs> Nothing in between. He'd get on well with Melisandre, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah, actually he would. And isn't that an interesting little distinction between the characters? Characters who may not be terribly sympathetic, um, mm. but characters who have enough humility to be like complicated, and characters who are just one-dimensionally useless or evil, one yeah. or the other, or occasionally both, like Theon. <laughs> um, there's another point. that they, they chat about... I mean, John confesses to Corrin that he let Egret go. Mm. And... Um, and this was a moment I thought, uh-oh, he, he's not going to be happy. <laughs> yeah. um, but Corin says, you know, he, he doesn't mind because, you know, she, as John says, she's uh, just one wildling miles away from anybody. So, you know, she's not going to be able to do a lot of damage. Yeah, yeah. And he, he effectively was kind of testing John just to see what it was like. Do you know, yeah. last time we spoke about this, um, I was quite critical of Corin saying if you wanted to make sure that happened, you needed to stand by and watch because John's quite young. Yeah. Um, but it turns out that the reason he let him do it on his own was he just wants to find out more about what John's character's like, and that's how he gets to know the men who are fighting around him. Yeah, and it's really canny, isn't it? And it's extremely good leadership. You know, you learn something. Mm. And it's even better leadership that he then kind of talks to John about it and draws him into that process. Mm, and kind yeah. of so in a sense it's a lesson for John as well. I also thought I liked this bit because when we were talking about last time we were saying actually one of the things that it might be is Corin Halfhand going, you know, walking away and saying, I'll wash my hands of this, rape her if you want to mm. and and it's clear that that wasn't in his head at all. So like for me we've also got a little bit of an angle on Corin Halfhand here and it's it's a positive angle. Like it makes me it makes me like him a lot more than than I did, you know, when we were thinking that that, that was a possibility. Well, I I think um, that that's right up to a point. I, I think he because he he says you know she didn't matter either way at all to me. Um, insofar as I think, even if John was the kind of person who did that, Corin would wouldn't have been worried about it. He would have just thought, you know, that's something else I know about. You know, you know, if he's the kind of guy who likes to do that. Um, he'd let John do it just to find out well, a bit more about him. Actually, yeah, no, you are absolutely right, aren't you? I suppose it's just that he wasn't openly advocating it, and isn't it a sad, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a sad true, indictment yeah. of how I've come to feel about many of these characters that simply failing to advocate horrendous sexual assault is enough to make me think, oh, you're all right, you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, that's, objectively, that's neutral at best, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, so John has this dream where I mean it's very similar to Bran, isn't it? Where he's mm. he's effectively we find it seems like later in this chapter that he has done what Bran does. <clears throat> excuse me, done what Bran does, which is inhabit the body of his direwolf because he dreams of being 
being a um, ghost and being attacked by this eagle. Mm. Um, and then he wakes up in like terrible fear. I don't know, what, what did you make of this? Well, it was re- for a second I was like, oh, fucking hell, John's a, John's a warg as well. Like, mm. you know, and it was interesting because we've had this like book and a half long build with Bran acquiring this ability or curse or whatever else you want to call it. Um, and then I just thought, oh, right, so John's got it in the course of a single chapter, has he? <laughs> Gifted this yeah. one. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, it seems to be more complicated than that because, you know, they're kind of like, you know, he wakes up and he tells Corin Halfhand about this dream and it's taken very seriously. Um, which is a surprise to John anyway. I think mm. he would probably just expect him to get, you know, mocked to shit and then just having to move past it. Uh, but no, you know, Corin takes it very seriously and um, and kind of talks through it. And I can't really work out what this what this is. Does John have this crazy ability? Or is this actually just a sign of Bran being so phenomenally powerful that now he not only sympathises with his wolf but he sympathises with his brother miles away and his brother's wolf. And he acts as, as a link. Yeah, or kind of appears in that dream, it would seem. Because you can well imagine, like, the you know, the three eyes on the tree? I mean, that's a motif that has appeared in Bran's dreams. So mm. it would seem, I think this is more than just John dreaming about Bran. Um, but I have no idea, you know, what the what the boundaries of that might be or how it might work or anything. Um, yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a strange part in this dream stroke wag experience, whatever it is, mm. um, when he wanders past this heart tree, this uh, this tree with you know the tree with the faces on him, and he hears Bran's voice, and Bran says it's it's okay in here, you know, um, and I don't know, it seemed to me like especially considering what's happening at Winterfell, um, that sounded to me like this kind of overlay of Bran's now dead, and but he's still speaking to people. Oh. That's the impression I got from that. That's the, that's the direction it led me. I think that's absolutely true. Because for me, because it implied to me that Bran was still alive, but we've seen quite conclusively that he's not, haven't we? So... Hmm. Uh, that's very It just seems like... It, it seemed like the... I've read similar things before where that happens, and that's the kind of thing people say who have died in mm. this, in this kind of fiction. Um, so, you know, possibly it could be nothing. It could just be his crazy dream, couldn't it? But yeah, obviously, yeah. there's some obviously there's something in it because because they come upon Ghost and he's been attacked by this eagle and only barely survived. It seems as in the dream, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, and I thought, I mean, the most shocking thing about this was the idea that there's an animal out there that can take on a direwolf and win. Because the direwolves, I've taken to thinking of as being like battering rams covered in fur, basically. Like, <laughs> yes. there's no beat in a direwolf. Mm. And so, how big are these fucking eagles? I mean, I've seen <laughs> birds of prey, but I would, you know, I, and I've also seen wolves. And to be honest with you. I would back a wolf against a bird of prey, particularly if it was like a wolf squared, which is what direwolves are supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, well, he got the he got the drop on him, literally, didn't he? Hey, <laughs> buzzing. Yeah, and um, the other interesting thing about um, the reaction of people like Corin Halfhand to this is the the rangers, especially the ones who spent a lot of time north of the Wall, are much more willing to believe things like wargs existing. Mm. Um, 
unsurprisingly, because they've been surrounded by this kind of creepy stuff for a long time now. Whereas compared to what's happening in further south, where you know even even sort of as far you know comparatively north as Winterfell, where uh, Maester Lewin is very um, scathing of anything to do with this kind of stuff, mm. but north of the wall, people are very quick to believe it. Yeah, that's very true, isn't it? And I and there definitely seems to be a sense of the wall is is more than just a physical boundary it seems to be like a like a symbolic or even spiritual boundary as well where there's like what goes on in the north seems to be purposefully untamed and and mm. there seem to be things up there which the which the westerosi have been extremely happy not to have to think about um mm. i also do you know what though i was thinking about that that um maester lewin thing and it really does smack to me of an old man who tried something that he really wanted to work 40 years ago. And he's almost just talking out of the disappointment of it rather than, mm. you know, objectively speaking, as a rationalist, this doesn't work. He's, mm. but he's kind of a, I think he's perhaps a, a frustrated magician. And so mm. I wonder, I mean, Theon's in Winterfell right now, so I suppose we can't discount the possibility that Lewin's going to die. But, um, I wonder if Lewin's going to get a chance to play with magic. Because if he does, I have a sense that he's going to be a bad-assed grandpa with that stuff. <laughs> It'd be quite a turnaround for a guy who's been presented as this ultimate rationalist in the uh, in the book, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be great, though? I mean, that would be absolutely fantastic if he was like, hang on, magic's coming back into the world. Shazam, motherfuckers! <laughs> Just yeah. starts turning walls into, like, potted plants. All the food at every banquet suddenly becomes a burger and chips. I always wanted one of these. <laughs> yeah, I always wanted one, but I never knew what it was called or what it was. <laughs> but now magic has come back into the world. I don't need no. Go, 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 gadget, magic, greasy food. <laughs> Who wants some Ben and Jerry's? Um. Ben and Jerry's? I don't know either, but now I'm really powerful, so I can make it up. Um. Okay, the, the this group see this this eagle, or this eagle sees this group. They see each other effectively, mm. mm-hmm. and um, as soon as Corin sees it, he decides that they've been spotted by. Um, to be honest, they see the eagle, and I think one of the others, as sort of as as John's talking about his dream, and one of the other members of the group says, like Warg with a question mark, mm. and John's not sure if they're talking about him or this eagle which has landed next to them. Mm, and neither and, are we, um, right? No, no, exactly. But Corin immediately decides that they've been seen and that now, he basically says, we are seen, now we run. And unquestioningly, everyone falls in and they just start retreating. Just pounding it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but not, not quickly enough because they get to this narrow pass where they killed the wildlings before. And... Um, Corin just sort of turns to Squire Dolbridge and says, from here, one man can hold a hundred, the right man. And sort of Squire Dolbridge just sort of takes the hint and says, leave as many arrows as you can and just stays. And John realises he's staying there to die. And it's it's quite an amazing moment of just casual self-sacrifice, isn't it? Yeah, and heroism, you know. Mm. And, um, And I think this is really important because between... This guy and Corin Halfhand, you see an angle on the Night's Watch where it is still what it was revered for being once upon a time. 
Yeah. You know, this time, you know, like when Joran was saying when he was taking the recruits up north, you know, time was they would get feasted at every tower and hold fast along the way because mm. of uh, this kind of attitude of really, really seriously skilled people being willing to give themselves up. Whereas now, it, you know, the Night's Watch, and all we've seen the Night's Watch be really is this kind of decaying, um, faltering collection of misanthropes and misfits and murderers. Um, mm. And with these two characters, you see something different from that. And it's really good because it helps you to understand like the mentality that has kept people beyond the wall all this time. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, th- and this chapter ends with just the sound of a hunting horn, so it's quite ominous, isn't it? Yeah, oh man, it's atmospheric. I, I don't know why yeah. they didn't film it this way as well in the TV series, because it's so, I mean, can you mm. imagine? You leave the guy, he says he's going to die, you walk away, and then you just hear in, like, the gloom from the pass just a long, single, lonely note, and then yeah. you have to keep running. Like, that's some atmospheric yeah. shit right there. <laughs> Yeah, it's really good, isn't it? This yeah. whole stuff mm-hmm. um, north of the wall now, when it deviates from the series, is is excellent. It is, and, it um, really is. And and the thing is that in the series, the north of the wall stuff is I, I found a bit tiresome. Like it's really pretty to look at because it's filmed in an amazing place, and I like that a lot. Mm. But at the story of it, I'm just like, eh. Like it seems mm. to move so slowly in the TV series, whereas here, every moment there's something really sort of bleakly fascinatingly dramatic going on Mm. yeah speaking of fascinating we're back down in king's landing with Tyrion. bit of politics yeah and the news has reached Tyrion that bran and rickon it seems that bran and rickon are dead um which which we we can go back to this um which we just saw in the chapter before as a bit of foreshadowing Mm. i think it was a spoiler to say because obviously it's it's revealed um throughout this part that we're reading today Mm. that for all intents and purposes, it appears that Bran and Rickon have died. Mm. Um, and it's quite a... It, it's basically, it's a concern because they think, they weren't, they're worrying what Catelyn's going to do to Jamie now because yeah. two, uh, two more of her ch- children have died. Although it would, ha- it would have to be kind of quite tough. I mean, she would have to really fly off the deep end, wouldn't she, in order to um, kill Jamie Lannister in punishment for something Theon Greyjoy did. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that. So that would be quite a, an illogical move. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but you don't. That, you know, people who've lost a number well, of children true, in a yeah. short space of time do illogical things, I suppose. And we've definitely seen Catelyn come to struggle with it, haven't we? I mean, she's not in a good place. Yeah, exactly. Um, they're talking about the defences for King's Landing because this is the point where um, it's just about to start this big battle now, isn't it, between mm. Stannis and and uh, Joffrey? Yeah. And uh, Tyrion makes a point that Joffrey needs to be seen on the battlement. Says he wants to keep Joffrey back and keep him safe. Mm. And Tyrion's saying, "Look, he needs to be amongst the men um, because we need all the morale boosting that we can get." Yeah, you're in a bad way, aren't you, when Joffrey? Joffrey Baratheon is your um, is your go to guy for a pep talk. <laughs> like, I mean, seeing what you've been like in front of large crowds in the past, like accidentally getting carried away and killing Ned Stark, for example. You know, you just imagine going out there and fully intending in the moment to be like, "People of King's Landing, I, your king, am here with you, and you do not need to be afraid because I have all the armor." And and yeah. getting up there and just getting getting like mad with the with the experience of it all and just going, 
fuck you all, motherfuckers, God, shoot them. Like, you could just imagine him <laughs> losing his shit, can't you? So for Tyrion yeah. to be like, we need him to be out there on the battlements, visible and talking, that's such a risk. That's, that's putting yeah. all your money on, uh, on a very, very unlikely square, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, you're right. It does show how desperate they are. They are as well at yeah, this point. Yeah. Now, there's this exchange about blackberry tarts, <laughs> <laughs> which leads us into the next part of sort of the plot, I suppose. And um, Cersei um, offers, well, she says to Tyrion, "I hope you like blackberry tarts." And Tyrion says, "I love all sorts of tarts." And she hey. said, "I've known that for a long time." <laughs> yeah. Bazing, and it all goes a little bit sort of Hepburn and Tracy. <laughs> it does a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it basically what she's driving at is she she says that she's got um, Tyrion's whore, oh. by which you know we all assume it's Shay. Um, but it turns out it's not. It's um, basically Tyrion's little sort of very intricate. Uh, long-winded <laughs> cover to get to Shay's has worked insofar as um, Cersei's found out where Tyrion's going but she's thought that he's just gone to this whorehouse to see this specific whore hmm. so they've, they've they've captured this girl called Elia. <sighs> yeah um, and T- Tyrion is kind of relieved when he finds out obviously that it isn't Shay but also he does still you know, would rather protect hmm. this woman who's helped cover for him than not. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's another one of those um, ruthless power plays by Cersei, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, cack-handed as fuck, though, isn't it? I mean, hmm. um, uh, but it's another example, actually, for me, this whole scene is another example of the fact that Cersei is shit at everything other than trying to be malevolent. You know what I mean? She's good at manipulating people, but in terms of like politics, she hasn't got a clue. No, the king should stay inside. That'll keep him more powerful. And mm. um, and then like falling for this ruse of Tyrion's. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah, but and Tyrion. I mean, Tyrion's response. I mean, oh, fair enough. You understand that he's in love with Shay, but he absolutely feeds this woman to the dogs. Yeah, he does. And um, I mean, he he. He tries to protect her insofar as he makes these really horrendous threats towards Tommen, who's in oh, Tyrion's yeah. custody. I mean, it's obvious from because we're in his head that he doesn't mean to follow through with them. We assume he doesn't. Mm. But he basically says, you know, whatever happens to Elia, um, you know, including being beaten and raped, it's going to happen to Tommen. And what a thing to say about your nephew. Yeah. I mean, and it's very clear that this is... This is this is kind of what Cersei has asked for in saying, I don't care what I do to anything you care about yeah. in order to protect my kids. Because all that invites, you know, it's the classic kind of, it's Newtonian, you know, there's, a, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So if she said, I'm going to be totally ruthless in pursuing the things you love in order to protect the things I love, you know, the natural response that everybody has to that is fine, then it's the things that you love that are on the line. Yeah. Um, not that that's right, not that that's good, you know, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. But, you know, you kind of, once again, for me, it's a sign of Cersei being a victim of her own um, callousness. Yeah. I think you're right with what you said just before as well, that um, Cersei's main, what Cersei is a real talent for is getting past people's armour and hurting them. Yeah. And you can see here, she's really done that with Tyrion, even in this attempt, even though it has, she doesn't have Shay, so she doesn't realise 
she's in as strong a position as she thinks. Mm. Um, I mean, Tyrion's response, and this is this becomes this became one of the lines in the trailer for this this season and mm. for the series. Um, but I'll just read the whole the whole sort of response. He says. Um, I've never liked you, Cersei, but you're my own sister, so I didn't, I've never done you harm. You've ended that. I'll hurt you for this. I don't know how yet, but give me time. A day will come when you think yourself safe and happy, and suddenly your joy will turn to ashes in your mouth, and you'll know the debt is paid. That's an extraordinary threat, isn't it? It is, to your sister. But I think, to be honest, this is a, this is a moment that has been waiting to happen for a long time, because there's been this mm. kind of, you know, quite subtly played... Um, off, well, sometimes very, very overt, sometimes very, very subtle um, tension between uh, between Tyrion and Cersei, and the fact that she hates him, and the fact that he has lots of good reasons to hate her, but he's still acting to protect the family, which involves protecting her. And then, and then, it, you know, you kind of had to close the circle. You couldn't go on having it be intriguing forever. You had to have this moment where they they face each other in like open hostility. Yeah, so Tyrion returns to his to to his room and it turns out Shay is already there and Varys has snuck her in. Yeah. Um to see him. And to, obviously the the residue of this sort of close shave is still in Tyrion's mind because his first reaction mm. uh, much as he wants to go over to Shay is just to check the room almost frantically mm. to try and work out where on earth this secret entrance to his own room is because he doesn't know where it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's interesting to me how calmly he seems to be dealing with this kind of... Mm. You know, I mean, he goes looking for it and stuff, but he still manages to sleep in there. If I was him, I'd be like, fucking hell, there's a secret passage into my bedroom controlled by somebody I have no reason to trust. Ah! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um... And he does, uh, lie, at the end of this chapter, sort of lie awake. And he is now, it's been made clear to him just how, how weak caring about somebody makes you here, doesn't it? Yeah. And this is, his, this, is his, this is his Achilles heel, if you like, isn't it? This is how um, somebody can get to him if they want to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's tense. Although, now, I would say that on the eve of an enormous, like, catastrophic battle... For the capital of the realm, one would think that people would have better things to think about than killing the guy who's coordinating it all. <laughs> but this is Westeros, and so like where people seem people never let logic get in the way of uh, a good bit of self-destructive malice, and yeah. and so I like Tyrion. I would be like, all the logic points to I should be safe. Unfortunately, there is no logic here. <laughs> and so I'm obliged to lie awake at night, fearful for my own skin. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, part of the problem with it is no one really believes um, that he's doing any good, no matter how much evidence there is to the contrary, mm. um, because of what he is mm. um, and his traditional station in life because of that. Mm. He, he doesn't get anything like the respect that other hands of the king have had. That's very true. And it's ironic, isn't it, that he seems to be a much better administrator than previous hands of the game. Well, I mean, we don't know about John mm. Arryn, but Ned Stark certainly was not all that um, yeah. uh, at this particular game, whereas Tyrion really is. Um, but he just doesn't have the... He doesn't have the respect because of who and what he is. Yeah. We move on to a chapter with uh, Catelyn, and she's sitting down to dinner with Brienne um, while the rest of 
the castle at Riverrun is celebrating mm. because uh, Rob's won another victory this time at somewhere called the Crag. Yeah. Um, but we're not. We don't hear much about it. But there's obviously some g- other generic victory has been grasped by by Rob again. Yeah. He seems like he's on an unbelievable roll, and he you know can't seem to lose at the moment. It's ridiculous, and, isn't it? Hmm. I suppose that's what happens with these kind of with wars as well, isn't it? You, once you, one side gains momentum, it's a succession of victories, mm. um, and it, and then it takes a monumental effort from the other side to turn the tide. Mm. Um, now, Kathleen can't join in with this, and it's not she, she's been a bit um, sort of reticent in the past because she's got this over overriding sense of foreboding, even when things are going well. But we realise it isn't isn't that this time is the fact she's received this letter which has informed that Bran and Rickon have been killed mm. and um, even though she knows it she she can't she finds it really difficult to, to tell anybody and um, I thought this was this was really um, this is really on, on the nose and really human because um, I mean I've experienced this myself where you get some bad news about somebody and it's I, I had some bad news about someone when I was on a day off and I spent the day sort of numb just walking around the flat yeah and then um when my sort of girlfriend came in and I sort of and asked me what was wrong that was when it really hits you yeah when you, when you say it yeah so I thought this was just perfectly illustrated you know how people deal with grief yeah very much and it's not many writers who would have the kind of um strength to properly portray that not as histrionics but just as like as a devastating experience you know not playing yeah. it so that you can write somebody falling to pieces and not playing it so you can have a big mo- big dramatic moment before the east enders drums come in but just so mm. you can say like this is how humans deal with it because you're out- i mean i've had exactly the same experience you just it's externalizing it that makes it makes it real in a sense mm. yeah and she she says to 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 uh, to Brienne here now you know, it's it's really. I mean, it's, I, I loved all this chapter from start to finish, but this bit with Brienne, where she's talking about her memories of what Bran was like when he was little, and yeah. what Rickon was like, and and she even thinks about Arya and Sansa as well. Mm. And she she thinks that pretty much, you know, she believes obviously Bran and Rickon have died. She believes Arya to be dead as well, um, and it's just sort of she's just absolutely crushed, isn't she? She she doesn't think she's ever going to see Sansa again. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Rob's fighting a war. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I mean, it's. I, do you know what? Actually, um, it, it, I really think um, I haven't really spent enough time thinking about the fact that she, she's still quite a young woman in a way. You know what mm. I mean? I mean, she can't be older than sort of her mid thirties, and mm. um, because you know, and her youngest child is four years old. Now, I have mm. friends with kids who are around that age, and the idea of them being killed at that age, I mean, we're in a different world, this is this is a novel, this is fiction and so on, but just, it's interesting to me to not to think of, of Caitlin as being kind of a parent, but being a contemporary, mm. and and that's quite frightening, like the idea of, you know, having, you know, having had this kid just four years ago, and now hearing that far away he's dead, I, I, there was just an angle in that that I hadn't really thought of before. Yeah. Andy's kind of, I, I don't know, in my head, I guess she was in her like, late 40s, i.e. Mm. not a contemporary of mine. Whereas, you know, she's, I, she must be quite close to my age. And that's weird. 
Yeah, I think it, I think you can get tricked into thinking some of these characters are older than they are um, because of how they're portrayed in the series. Ah, where that's very she's true. much older in the series, and she's the same yeah. with Ned. Ned's much much played by a much older actor yeah. um, in the uh, in the series. Yeah, it kind of, I mean it kind of works, I think, because um, to believe that they have this kind of gravity, um, I, I like the fact that in the series they're, they're older because it'd feel a bit too um, if there are these sort of Still young and good-looking people. Um, if this, I don't know. If this did seem impossibly young, I think um, if it was on screen, it's one thing to read it and the other mm-hmm. to watch it. Yeah, I think because true. a lot of dramas cast young um, just to yeah. fairly, you know, just to get people watching it, yeah. and and that would just sort of eroded your belief in the realism. Yeah, that's very um, true. But I mean, so so she's considering this, the fact that she's lost all this. And she seems really on the edge, and it's at this point that she says to Brienne that she wants to go and see Jamie um, at midnight. Yeah. And you're thinking, oh, oh no. so this is <laughs> whoever is involved in this. It's not going to go well for either of them, is it? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so Catelyn goes. She goes to see her dad first, who's still in this, effectively in this coma, mm. and she speaks to him basically because she's not really got anybody else to talk to mm. um, even Brienne is she's obviously very loyal but she's not the most she's not exactly a people person is she and again you get this sense of Catelyn just being trapped mm. um, and then after speaking to her father in a one way conversation she then goes down to see Jamie. Um I thought it was interesting when she first comes across him in the dungeon because um, he's not been allowed to shave yeah. he actually he looks a mess, but also kind of magnificent. He looks like a lion. <laughs> he's got this massive mane, <laughs> and it's like he's the, he, he's this, he's the kind of guy who, even if he's a complete mess, is that sort of strikingly good looking yeah. that he can pull it off. And there are a number of points, aren't there, in this scene where George Martin sort of takes a moment to talk about how attractive Jamie is, <laughs> yeah. which is like, and like how magnificent and arrogant and and, and gifted and so on he is. Um, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Like, I don't really yeah. know what that what that adds, like, to the experience of seeing him do his thing. Um, yeah, but I mean, maybe he's supposed to be an image of you know that he's like perfectly made to be a king. You know, he's got all the attributes necessary. You know, good looking, good yeah. at fighting, psychopathically convinced of his own rightness <laughs> and his own ability. I mean, yeah. he. Um, in this exchange, I mean, this exchange is brilliant. I love oh, it all. It it's great, crackling right? with tension, yeah. and yeah, and um, the, the back, it's really sharp. The, uh, the 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 back and forth as well. It's two people who know how to the way around a, an argument as well, I suppose, mm. and how to score points on each other, and um, and we have this discussion about in the same way that that the Hound and Sansa had this discussion about sort of belief. And um, Jamie obviously says that there's no such thing as gods because of the state of the world. The same thing that the Hound said, and um, you know he says something like, you know, if if gods existed, why is there so much terrible thing, so much ter- terrible suffering in the world? Mm. And um, Catelyn says, because of men like you. And his response is, there are no men like me, only me. Uh, I quite like that. He's a great response, isn't it? But he's terrifying as well. Like for somebody yeah. to have been. You know, locked up in a in a cell with a bucket in the corner, overflowing with his shit. That was a nice little <laughs> kind of piece of detail there about where he was living. For him still to be like, I am the best, 
there's yeah. something wrong with that brain, isn't there? Not to experience a small amount of introspection after a year of being treated this way. <laughs> um, he he confesses quite uh, openly mm. and without much remorse, uh, about without any remorse really, about the fact that he did uh, fling Bran from that window and he did mean to kill him. Um, in fact, he's quite cutting with that. He says, you know, people rarely throw children from the window to improve their health. He just has no remorse <laughs> at all there, is there? No, no. Um, and uh, the the one thing he does deny is sending that assassin to finish Bran off. Yeah. And again, he says, and he says, why would I lie about that? I'm confessing about everything else. Yeah. But um, but he says it wasn't it wasn't Tyrion's knife. It wasn't his knife. It was nothing to do with the Lannisters, effectively. And again, Catelyn has a moment of doubt, doesn't she? Mm. And this was intriguing to me because I kind of, despite all the back and forth about is it Tyrion's knife, is it not Tyrion's knife, is Littlefinger involved somehow because it was bet way back when, um, I'd kind of taken it for granted that it was a Lannister, that this was a Lannister mm. initiative. And, of course, Jamie's not going to say, oh, yeah, it was definitely us. Um, but he is being quite candid here, and it does make me wonder what an amazing twist it would be if, like, I don't know, the end of this book or something, it turned out to have been somebody totally different trying to off Bran for other reasons. Mm. I mean, I, I yeah. don't know who that could have been or for why, but I'm kind of, this is he's kind of blown some heat back in into these embers for me. I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, actually, this could be great. Yeah. Um, they have this discussion, and again, it's a, it's a similar chat that Catelyn had with Walder Frey, strangely enough, yeah. but it's done much much better here, where um, she 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 sort of attacks Jamie for his um, for breaking vows, and Jamie's response is he says, "So many vows, they make you swear and swear, defend the king, obey the king, keep his secrets, do his bidding, your life for his, but obey your father, love your sister, protect the innocent, defend the weak, respect the gods, obey the laws. It's too much. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow for another. It's a great and it's thing, isn't it? Perfectly put, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely perfect. And it tells you this interesting sort of, um, in a sense, you can kind of overdo the idea of big commitments you know there mm. you know you have to choose, pick and choose your commitments very carefully and only only commit to the things that are truly of that level of importance um yeah. and when you try to start to use vows like that as a means of governing places then it all goes wrong because you can't you know mm. it's it's always more complicated than that yeah and, and Jamie quite successfully here and is challenging our preconceptions about what is right and wrong in this world as well, because he talks about the. I mean, we've we've always assumed, as because a lot of the time, because we've seen it through Ned's eyes, mm. that he killed the last king, and is this not to be trusted? You know, the Kingslayer, um, and and is this guy who's got in power because of his dad, and he is ruthless and completely not to be trusted, mm. and he. He just gives us an illustration of just how crazy the king was. Mm. And he talks about how uh, Ned's older brother and father were killed. Yeah. Um, and there's this story, isn't there, where effectively he, they were captured um, when they were told to come down to King's Landing. Yeah. And um, Ned, Ned's father was sort of hung from a, like above a fire and burned alive. Oh, in his armour. Um, just in his armor. cooked in his yeah. armour. Oh, it's horrible. While his... 
while while Ned's older brother was sort of had to watch, and there was a sword to cut down his dad. Um, but if as he tried to reach it, this sort of noose around his neck would tighten, so he strangled himself trying to get the sword. It's just horrendous, isn't it? It is, and you and you, it's another thing of understanding why they called this guy the Mad King. And actually, it does also make you think a little bit about how how invested in Daenerys you should be, given that this is her. <laughs> she's the she's the only surviving product of this guy's shagging his sister. Oh right, the sins of the father. And all oh that. well, uh, well. I mean, look at Joffrey. Do you know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's clear that the the resounding message of the Game of Thrones series, and I think we're all alongside this, is don't shag your relatives. It won't work out. <laughs> and 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 you know Joffrey's crazy is Daenerys crazy as well because um because the Mad King was a product of just such a just such a relationship union travesty yeah well there's this phrase isn't there which they talk about which is um whenever um one of these one of the one of this line is born the gods flip a coin yeah. because you have people like Rhaegar uh, who was this prince who everybody seemed to love and we've we've seen no reason to to think he was mad other than the fact that Robert um believed that he'd stolen Ned's sister and raped her so I suppose there is a blot on the <laughs> just a blot on the copy there we go there. yeah <laughs> but again you have Daenerys who seems a uh, who maybe is an example of a possibly a positive um, Targaryen, but we will see. Uh, added to this um, challenge, challenging your sort of preconceptions about who is good and who is bad as well, yeah. um, whenever we've heard about the old Kingsguard before, yeah. we've thought about them as, you know, how they used to be so much better. Yeah. And they're, they're named, you know, this guy, the Sword of the Morning, yeah. and um, this other, the, the leader who was Gerald Hightower. Yeah. And Jamie says he remembers after the, this happened in the throne room, and Ned's father and, and brother were killed in this way. Gerald Hightower, who was the sort of Lord Commander of the King's Guard at the time, took Jamie aside because he was very young mm. and told him, you know, you swore to protect, uh, not to judge. And it's just sort of, no matter what happens, that's your job. And it just it's just a perfect illustration of just, like you say, the limitations of those kind of votes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I tell you what was also interesting is that in this scene, Jamie says something that I, I thought was an incredibly good point and I really agreed with, where he said, um, the thing that I'm hated for the most is the only thing I've done that I'm proud of. Something mm. like that, where he's like, everyone calls me Kingslayer with contempt. For fuck's sake, wouldn't you have done? Like, he's a nasty character, but it does seem to me that he cops an unbelievable amount of hatred for doing something mm. which was quite a good thing. Otherwise, how long would this guy have gone on ruling the place? You know, your mind thinks of people like um, Robert Mugabe, who's been in charge of Zimbabwe for 34 years and is going mm. strong and has totally <laughs> fucked the place. And um, and he's, you know, I mean, uh, you know, real-world examples of, of malevolent dictators are not hard to come by. Um, mm. yeah. And so you think, well... The guy who, you know, the, the for, of all the things Jamie Lannister's done, that would seem to be the one that's most that should be most likely to to be viewed positively, but apparently not. Yeah, you're you're right, and um, he he sort of adds to that when he's talking about that when he was taken to one side by um, 
by Gerald Hightower as well because he says that was the white bull um, he's the nickname of the guy that was the white bull loyal to the end and a better that and a better man than me all agree hmm. again in this sort hmm. of <laughs> just, just sort of putting it out there yeah. um, it's interesting what you said about that quote where he says that killing Ares was king, killing the mad king was his finest hour um that he says the first part of that sentence is I was loved by one for a kindness I never did and I've no idea what that is no actually that's very true I do wonder what that's about it's quite cryptic it isn't is it? yeah um, also with just just coming back on the uh, you know whether or not killing the king was his finest act it's interesting because um, Robert who became obviously King Robert for uh, it wasn't it didn't cop anywhere near as much grief for leading this rebellion mm. Um, he wasn't, you know, he he was he managed to rule and was relatively popular for a while, and I just wonder whether it's it's more to to do with the fact that um, you can re- you can sort of bring down someone like that possibly, but there's there's a way to do it, and and the way is to sort of you know go away and start a rebellion, and it's the fact that he kills the king in his sort of in a place of safety, and there are these sort of rules, aren't there, mm. which if you break them then the whole of society comes down because a king needs to be safe when he's surrounded by his guards. Because mm. if he isn't, then yeah. the whole system doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe that's one of the reasons why he is so reviled, why that action is so reviled. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. But I, I, I don't know, I don't see a lot of particularly complex political thinking going on in the in the minds of the people of Westeros. Yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just something that, it's instinctive though. It's oh, just, yeah. it's just bringing down the whole you know, rules and what sort of the, the whole reason it works isn't it so well, it works in the it just, it just brings chaos though, doesn't it it works yeah. in that not everybody's dead but that's about <laughs> yeah. as much as you can say for this as a system of government isn't it yeah yeah i mean i would still suggest it's better than just anarchy though well, which is seems the well I, I mean that's true but i would say that you know this is closer to anarchy than you might think it's just, anarchy with, mm. with certain kind of informal accretions of power in certain places, which will always happen when somebody has all the gold. Mm. That's a fair point. Um, this this discussion, which is which is fiery and, and really tense all the way through, comes to a sort of a climax with uh, Jamie really scores a, a hit on Catelyn emotionally when she... Um, it's basically Catelyn trying to make... Jamie feel bad, isn't it? But pretty much all of this, she's 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 spending the the entire conversation trying to say, look at all these terrible things that have happened because of you. Don't you feel any remorse? And he turns it on her by calling out Ned for cheating on her. Mm. Um, and he's saying that even though Cersei was my sister, she's the only person I've ever loved and ever been with. Um, unlike your late husband. Ooh. And at this point. <laughs> Catelyn loses his shit and says to Brienne, give me a sword. And that's where the chapter ends. <laughs> it's a cliffhanger, isn't it? And, I, like, yeah. it's... Man, there's just... There's, oh, the preposterousness of Jamie Lannister being like, well, this is legit. <laughs> Your husband, though, what a cock. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, there is some twisted logic in that, isn't there? There is logic in it, I think, but only when you're a long way away from it and squint a little bit. 
You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, the closer yeah. you get to it, the, his whole edifice is built on the idea that sleeping with your sister is an honourable and romantic thing to do. And I think that would <laughs> yeah. not be true even if the sister in question wasn't Cersei Lannister. Since it is... You know what I mean? It's a bit difficult to look at uh, and, and look at the whole situation and be like, "Oh yeah, his base is lovely, isn't it?" It's what all Hollywood romances are made out of. Here's an interesting question: At the end of this chapter, it looks like what Jamie's going to get killed. Well, yeah. Um, Although uh, we've never seen Cer- um, not Cersei, we've never seen Catelyn handle a sword, have we? So, yeah. and Brienne's sword is by all accounts fairly badass. So I don't know whether she's going to be like, I'm going to kill you with this thing I can barely pick up. Have at thee. <laughs> yeah. Um, at this point, I mean, we don't know what happens next. Do you want, would you be happy if Jamie's killed here? Ooh, well, that's curtains for Sansa, isn't it? Um, mm. On the other hand, don't like Sansa very much. Uh, no, no, I'm kidding. That would be, that's that's horrible. I can understand it, but I think mostly what this is is just a genius piece of plotting such that he's brought me to a point where I'm willing for Jamie to live rather than be killed. You know, the kind of... There's a lot of bloodlust that you can feel towards bad characters in books like this, particularly characters as relentlessly terrible as Lannister's. But actually, I don't want her Mm. to kill him because I think that would that would send the plot in a in a difficult direction. Like in the same way as I was pissed about Stannis's shadow babies. We you know, if she mm. killed him now it would be like ah oh, shit's going to fly, you know? Um yeah. and I would feel like that would let down a lot of the a lot of the kind of promises of the plot so far. Then again, because yeah, we've already reached that Exactly. Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then again, George Martin has shown himself to be singularly unconcerned with promises he's made in the plot in the past. <laughs> So, yeah, could be that she's yeah. going to kill him. But it's funny. I I was quite surprised at this point because I I've, I've spent the whole book and three quarters thoroughly disliking Jamie Lannister. But at the end of this, I was really sort of thinking, oh oh no, I really really hoping he doesn't die because, and not so much because of the plot, just because I really like reading. I really like reading about the character. Um, I love his interactions, and um, I just think he's a great character. Yeah. I just think if he dies, <laughs> he's going to lose one of the most interesting characters in this book. Mm. Even though he's because he is, he's, and I think a lot of it has to do with the, just how well this or how well this conversation is written here. And there's so much backstory and in conflict swirling around Jamie Lannister mm. that it was just I found myself thinking, oh. I really hope, even though I hate him, I really hope he doesn't get killed. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so someone who I don't feel like that about. Um, let's let's move on to the next chapter, uh, which will now be called for um, all these future chapters: Theon Greyjoy's poor life choices. <laughs> um, <laughs> Brilliant! I was wondering when we get to Theon Greyjoy's poor life choices. <laughs> yeah, well, we're here, so buckle up. Um, it starts with him having a nightmare. Unsurprisingly, he's got a bit of guilt circling around his head at the moment. Um, he's being chased by these direwolf stroke children, basically Black Bran and Rickon, yeah. as, as with the bodies of direwolves. Yeah, and he wakes up screaming. Always, always good PR for a king. That did you hear that screaming this morning? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it was it was the the prince as he calls himself. Yeah, what a tool. Yeah, I know what yeah. a tool. <laughs> 
and he finds out that Ash has arrived, who's his sister, who was told to go and take Deepwood Mott. And um, she's brought some men up to Winterfell. And he's, he's delighted because he thinks, finally, we've got some more people to garrison this massive castle. I might be able to hold it now. Mm-hmm. Um, he puts his he puts his crown on to go and see her, and it's a really shit crown. It just sums it up all the whole situation up really, because yeah. he's killed Micken, who's the armorer. Yeah. Um, he's had to kind of make it himself, <laughs> and it's just really shoddily done. Do-it-yourself jewelry. Well, is it? It's an iron an iron band with black diamonds in it. Black diamonds or coal, yeah. as it's otherwise known. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> stuck all the way around his head with you I bet you can still smell the prit stick yeah <laughs> um he's a uh, as he's on his way to see Asher who's in the uh, the great hall um he he remembers that well, he considers the fact that all the people who were with him on this hunt remember he, he went on this hunt didn't he to to bring back the uh, to bring back Bran and Rickon mm. which it seems ended in their deaths um he, he all the people who were with him have been picked off one by one Oh yeah, um, in the castle, and he's blamed this kennel ma- the kennel master Farlin, mm. and executed him. And even even doing that, you know, Farlin said to Theon as he was as his head was on the block, you know, Lord Stark always did his own executions, which I mean that was a fucking bad move from Farlin because then Theon tries to do it and ends up hacking the poor guy to pieces, oh, horrible, which must be a horrible it? way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean but in a sense there's a victory in it for Fallon, isn't there? Because he make like he, he he continues this process of Theon being goaded into doing things that he doesn't want to do, like and exposing the fact mm. that he has about as much knowledge of who he is and what he wants to be about as a tadpole does. You know, he's literally just yeah. kind of blown this way and that. He's the very opposite of a king. Yeah. You know, because there's all sorts of ways. Not every king in the world did that you know, just Ned. So he could easily have said, I'm not Ned Stark or something like that. But instead, you know, he's like, he's still so conflicted about what kind of a Lord he wants to be that he's no kind of a Lord at all. No, he, he, he meets Asha and, um, she, she calls him the Prince of Fools, um, when she sees him and she pretty much laughs in his face. And, um, he, uh, and also, you know, she, she says how stupid it was to kill the two children and that everybody in the North now hates you and hmm. you're never going to be able to hold this place. Mm. Um, and he, he again takes a moment and there's all these, there are these little rays of, um, sunshine and self-awareness that every so often break upon thin and then disappear just as quickly and again at this point he sort of steps back and thinks how did i come to this Mm. and that again is a really nice way of just summing up just the situation he's got himself into oh yeah Um, and it's in it's interesting that asha his sister is aware of how low Theon is seen by everybody because she demeans him in front of her men Mm. and then when they go and speak alone she's much more um, I mean she's not particularly warm to him but she's warmer and she's very sisterly yeah she's less in a big sister kind of way yeah yeah she doesn't grandstand as much whereas whenever there's somebody else in the room she's like uh, you know taking every opportunity to mock and belittle yeah, and that's how, because that's how she maintains her power over the, everybody else, isn't it? Yeah, because because if she's seen to be saying, "Oh, he's not," he's, he's a, you know trying to be too supportive of Theon, then it's she's going to play really badly with the rest of her men. And she's very, she's very canny like that, isn't she? Um, she she's quite talented, Asha. Mm. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. She there's more to this character, I think, than we've so far seen. So far, she's been horrendous 
and then mm. um, clearly trusted as a, as a worthy lieutenant of characters who are twats. Um, but mm. there, it's complicated. You know, like you say, there's a sisterly kind of note in her voice uh, as she's talking to Theon later, and it's like, well, really? Why? Yeah, yeah, and she basically says, you can't hold Winterfell. It's too far from the sea. Everybody hates you. <laughs> so come back with me to Deepwood Mall mm. and, uh, you know, and, and don't throw your life away. Because it turns out that Sir Roderick is continuing to give Barristan Selmy a run for his money as the original badass grandpa mm. because he's conti- he's routed Dagmar, you know, down at Torrens yeah, Square. Yeah. So he's broken that siege. And now the sort of Sir Roderick forces and everybody from of the rest of the tall hearts are on the way up to Winterfell to take the castle back. So yeah. it's going to, you know, Theon's going to lose the castle and it's going to happen soon. Mm-hmm. So he's got to get out. Mm-hmm. But I suppose because Theon's so desperate to for this shot at glory and for to, to be seen as the heir to this to the Iron Islands, yeah. if he runs off with Asher with his tail between his legs, it's over for him. So he's he's again he's 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 managed to trap himself, hasn't he? Because yeah. <laughs> he's, he's no way exactly. Out. And you know he has conflicting aims and has about as much strategic sense as a wet fish. Just doesn't know what he's doing <laughs> at all. Um, and yeah. and and you know thinks that the way to get what you want is to wait until it's upon you and then stamp your feet and kill the right people. And so much of, yeah. of politics is about ensuring that it never comes to that point. Or that when it comes to that yeah. point, the decision's already been made. Yeah. And his, his only ace in the hole, <laughs> if you can call it yeah. that, is he's sent, he's sent Reek off, do you remember, as we said before, the bastard of Bolton's smelly little servant. Yeah. He sent him off to, um, to somewhere, I assume, the general Bolton area, to try and drum up a bit of support, which I don't even understand how that's going to happen. But yeah. um but yeah, that's the only way he could possibly be saved, which you think is the longest of long. It shots. is a bit, isn't it? It's not so much shooting the moon as it is trying to play golf with a hole on Jupiter. Like it's not going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say before we move on to Theon's second dream mm. was um, the fact that when this announcement was made, he basically um, brought back these the, the, the two bodies, dipped them in tar. Um, and then removed their heads and stuck them on spikes. And it sent this guy, the kennel master, file and sent, sent him into just this rage, yeah. um, such was his loyalty to the Starks. And I, I suppose that's um, another reason why Theon felt it was a good idea to, to remove him. Um, and then, But then Lewin comes up to him quietly and begs just to at least have the heads back so they can bear, you know, bury them in the crypts like, they, you know, like they're supposed to do. Which is quite a, um, I don't know, quite a spiritual thing for Lewin to want to do, but it's just it just shows grief in two different but equally powerful ways there from members of the household, and I thought that was quite nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's move on to this dream, um, this next dream, and he, Theon's in uh, Winterfell, and he's having this feast, and it's the feast that they had, you know, way back when, when Rob, when uh, King Robert came to, oh, yeah. came to Winterfell yeah, yeah, yeah. to get Ned, yeah. so it's that again. But all these people around him are now dead. You know, there's King Robert who's got his sort of guts out where he's been gored by this boar. Yeah. Uh, Ned's sitting there without a head, which is bizarre. Yeah. Um, and then there are all the other members of the household, generally like Jory Castle and Alan and Fat Tom, yeah. and they're all there yeah. too. And again, all dead. Yeah. Um, 
And there are even people he's never seen mm. um, and wouldn't know what they look like, but recognises them through how they dressed, like Liana, who's um, oh, yeah. in this, you know, uh, Ned's sister who died, and she's in this white dress, which is which has got blood all over it. Mm. And there are a couple of other people. I think there's um, the two people that we heard about when Jamie was talking, so Ned's older brother and his father are there as well. Mm. It's a very odd dream, isn't it? Yeah, it's weird. And I tell you what, I didn't realise until I was flicking through a few previous chapters before, there's actually a scene almost exactly like this when Daenerys is in the House of the Undying. Yeah, there's a yeah, there's true. a whole feast thing with dead people around. This is and and you know dreams are clearly George Martin's favorite way of doing freaky shit that will subsequently become freaky plot shit. Mm. And but this would be another level, wouldn't it? If there's if 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 there's this idea of like, are all of these dead people going to return? Like, are they? Is this talking about an like an an external reality? Um, mm. You know, with these people in the dream that he's never met but recognises. Yeah. Like, what's going to happen mm. there? Because, you know, the notion, the idea of a returned King Robert or whatever. I mean, they burned him or buried him or whatever, but I suppose it's unlikely. But <laughs> mm. creepy as fuck. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it feels like a feast of the dead, doesn't yeah. it? And if this is, if this is as you suggest, moving towards premonition, mm. then there's some... There's a really worrying moment because this dream ends with the doors being thrown open yeah. and Rob enters and he's covered in um, like these horrific wounds yeah. and his direwolves with him in a similar state. Yeah. And again, that could be seen as extremely worrying foreshadowing. Yeah. Um, I, I read it as one of two things. This one is that um, this is yeah this is a sort of a, a feast of the dead and this shows that. Rob's going to die, yeah. um, and horribly. Or you could be more rational and say this is a dream, um, and you know he's recognising these other people because you know he's heard tales of they will have heard about these people before, and he recognises them, so he already knows who they yeah. are. And the fact that Rob arrives is it just represents the um, the treachery that uh, Theon's sort of done, yeah. and those sort of wounds are the other wounds that he's inflicted. And it's just him sort of processing it, and you. I suppose you would have that kind of dream, wouldn't you, if you'd made that kind of terrible um, decision? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, and I really hope it's that because I could do I could do without Rob dying. I quite like Rob, um, but you know, painful experiences taught me not to trust George Martin. So I'm not I'm not betting on anything. Yeah, I've got to be honest. From here on, it um, makes me brace myself every time I, I, I come to chapters about Rob, and I'm, I'm sort of I fear for him more because of this. Dream. Yeah, because we, you know, and and you have to take dreams seriously in this particular narrative universe, don't you? Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now, 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 Theon can't sleep, and he goes up onto the onto the walls, and he looks out and just sees these two the two heads of the children, mm. and this is where we get a big twist. Because he says, um, it's well, from what he considers here, it's obvious that these aren't actually Bran and Rickon. Bom, bom, bom. <laughs> um, it's Bush. it's uh, it's uh, he's killed the two kids um, who were sort of the, the two children of this this, this Miller's wife, um, which you know, were, which is the place they tracked 
Bran and Theon, Bran and Rickon too. Mm. And um, he's dipped their heads in tar, stuck them up there and said that they're Bran and Rickon. And everybody's believed it because they see what you tell them to see. And he says, if I said they were ram's heads, they would have seen horns. It's a, it's a witty ending line for him, isn't it? It's through a chapter where he's basically been a sort of waftingly pathetic presence. At least he says something witty at the end. Yeah, it's an amazing sort of successful bit of misdirection, which um, you forget that Theon is at all capable of because everything else he does seems to be seems to be really he either fails or it's a bad choice. Mm. And we don't know whether this is. It's obvious that um, it's actually quite. If you take a step back, um, a really canny move because he needed to show his ruthlessness. Mm. Uh, he didn't have the kids. Mm. So he's found some other kids. I mean, he's still t- killed two children. Let's not forget yeah. that. Um, <clears throat> and it's horrendous. Um, mm. I don't know, but it's it's it was just a, it's an interesting development, and it also gives us a bit of hope that maybe Bran and Rickon have yeah. survived. And is this also should we mark this? We are nearly two books into this series, and this is the first time there's a cliffhanger that might relieve your despair rather than deepen it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's um, <clears throat> and that's where we leave it for today. <sighs> Oh, <laughs> exactly. And, and uh, before you wrap it up, oh, actually, this is where we say, um, if you want to get in touch, you've got any thoughts on the uh, the podcast or on the book so far, uh, predictions for the future, if you want to send them in as well, um, you can email sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get us on the Twitter at sharkliveroil. Um, shall we have a look at what we're doing next Let's. week? Okay, so... Um, Next, the next part, we're reading from the next chapter, page 733, which is about Sansa, which begins, they'd been singing in the sept all morning. Um, we're reading as far as page 786, which is a chapter about Daenerys, which begins, she was breaking her fast on. Oh, you're going to leave it hanging. There's a cliffhanger. Oh, yeah. Matt. But <laughs> basically, this next chapter is entirely um, a battle. Brilliant. Uh, it's going to be called Blackwater, and it's it's awesome. And um, if you if you've got it, I'd suggest listening to Massive Attack Mezzanine while you read it because it's brilliant. Great. <laughs> it gives you a real sense of atmosphere. That's awesome, actually. Um, That's really good advice. I'm going to yeah, do that. If you've got it, give it yeah. a try because it's really, really we'll good. Do. Um, oh, uh, but before we, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, the last thing to do today is what is fast becoming a feature. I'm not quite sure how, and it's Dave's final thought. <laughs> Dave's poorly thought through final thought. The day I put any any effort into thinking of these is the day this feature fails. Um, my final thought is, it's quite an achievement for an author to depict, by implication, the merciless slaughter, decapitation, and marination in tar of two children, and have that be a positive feeling scene at the end of it where you realize oh I, I didn't do it to the kids i was hoping you wouldn't do it to so we're all right what we're yeah. george martin is a jester in our he, he in our he's the fool of our court holding up a mirror to our moral complicity and hoping that children get soaked in tar after they've been killed there you go yeah yeah i think if you're going to take one lesson away from this podcast today it would be the killing of children and dipping them in tar it's never a good thing. 
Absolutely. We can all agree on, on that, that we can all agree and isn't it quite an achievement <laughs> as well for saying that such a huge chunk of this particular bit has been taken up with the discussion of incest that the, the major lesson from today has absolutely nothing to do with that <laughs> exactly yeah so many lessons anyway um, until next time until next uh, time man. In, enjoy enjoy black water I will uh, page 733 to 786 and like I say if you've got massive attack mezzanine stick that on as you're reading it and, uh, and you'll love it <laughs>